Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Provincetown is a sleepy little place, best known for attracting more eclectic types, especially in the late 1960s. In those days, the whole town was swept up with the carefree attitude of the hippie era. It wasn't uncommon for a young woman to decide to leave without informing her family every now and then. Mostly, their disappearances were chalked up to free spirits getting overcome with the spontaneous need to see the world. The police assured the worried parents that their daughters would return home sooner or later, or at the very least, they'd call when they ran out of money. But the 1968 disappearances of Patricia Walsh and her friend Marianne Wysocki were different. Patricia was a school teacher and her parents were adamant that she wasn't the type to run off without a word. They said she loved her job and would never just stop going to work, and that she hadn't even planned to stay in Provincetown for longer than a weekend. Something was wrong. So the police started asking around and a single name kept coming up. Tony Costa. With the two women nowhere to be found, the authorities worked to retrace their steps. And the more they looked, the more Tony's name jumped out at them. Tony was already well known to the local police. He had a nasty drug habit and occasionally served as an informant. Most of his friends called him Sire, and considering the fact that most of them were wayward teens he supplied with his homegrown marijuana, he probably was the closest thing to a king in their minds. The search for clues brought investigators to an old, out-of-the-way cemetery in the next town over. Some locals in the area reported seeing Patricia Walsh's car parked on a dirt road towards the back of the graveyard. Unfortunately, the car was gone by the time authorities got there and they left the area empty-handed, but something around the surrounding woods called to them. They returned to the woods a few days later. This time, they had a large crew in tow, complete with a team of dogs and a helicopter flying overhead. The authorities hoped to find some clues on the whereabouts of the missing women and stumbled on an unexpected horror. Roughly 10 feet from the edge of the road, a shallow grave had been dug and then hastily recovered. Underneath the dirt was a green duffel bag, and beneath that was the dissected body of a young woman. She had been cut into eight pieces and most of her organs had been removed. But this body was in the advanced stages of decomposition, meaning it definitely wasn't Patricia Walsh or Marianne Wysocki. It was someone else entirely. But who? As the investigation ramped up, Tony Costa skipped town, but not before checking out of the same guest house that Patricia and Marianne last occupied. The police searched his room after his departure and found a number of suspicious items left behind, including a turtleneck that still carried the faint smell of Patricia Walsh's perfume. This is Monsters. Boy.
Born on August 2, 1944, Antone Charles Costa, who went by Tony, was merely an infant when his father drowned while serving in the United States Navy. When he was seven years old, he told his mother, Cecilia, that a man was coming into his room at night. When asked to describe this man, he pointed to a picture of his deceased father, someone he was too young to fully remember. Was it just an imaginative child's mind playing tricks at night, or was the young boy getting some quality time with his father from beyond the grave? The answer really depends on whether or not you believe in ghosts. In November of 1961, Tony was just 17 years old, but he already had some bad intentions. See, up until this point, he'd been living with his mother in Boston. One night, he got the idea to break into an apartment close by. Inside, a teenage girl named Donna Welch was alone and fast asleep. Tony dragged her out of bed and proceeded to tie her up. Luckily, Donna's parents came home before he could do much else, and he was quickly arrested by Somerville police. He told the officers that Donna had given him a key and asked him to sneak into her bedroom. She was happy to see him, or so he claimed, but he started to have second thoughts, so he told her he wanted to leave. As he started to sneak his way back out of the house, Donna began screaming, so he ran away. When asked if he tied the girl up, he readily admitted to it and claimed it was a game they played every now and then. Tony told them that he tied her up on multiple occasions and would often pull her underwear down to look at her, but he swore this game was consensual and that she never screamed like that before. The cops didn't buy it, and Tony was charged with assault and battery as well as breaking and entering with the intent to commit a felony. He was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to a year in a juvenile correctional facility, but when his mother begged for leniency, the judge ultimately relented. He was given a one-year suspended sentence instead, followed by three years of probation. Trouble with the law aside, Tony already had a terrifying reputation for tying girls up against their will. In one incident, Tony's mother went next door to visit with a friend, and when she came back, she discovered that her son had tied up one of the neighbors. But most alarming of all was his habit of bringing girls back to his room. Once they were there, he would press a pillow over their faces and attempt to smother them. None of these attempts were successful, but they were a huge red flag. And then there were the missing pets. Every once in a while, one of the neighborhood dogs or cats would go missing. Nobody could prove anything, but many people suspected that Tony was the one to blame. He certainly had no problem killing wild animals like squirrels or the occasional raccoon, which he would then use to perfect his taxidermy techniques. It wouldn't be much of a leap to assume he might have moved on to larger animals at some point. Eventually, after Tony's increasingly vile behavior had summarily pissed off the entire community, his mother sent him to live with a relative in Provincetown. She hoped the fresh start would benefit her troubled son and calm his dark impulses. Does that ever work out? Tony was a senior in high school by then, and he struggled to connect with his peers. In a town where everybody knew everybody else, Tony Costa was a total stranger, and he appeared to like it that way. Despite his social struggles, Tony eventually managed to find a girlfriend. Their relationship, however, wasn't exactly... normal. See, Tony, then 18, found himself a 13-year-old girl. It was weird even for the time. In spite of her tender age and the fact that she was still in the 8th grade, 
the couple would eventually marry when she turned 14. Given what we know now about Tony Costa, it makes sense that he would seek out a partner that was significantly younger. After all, kids are pretty easy to manipulate, even teenagers. Inexperience and submissiveness go hand in hand, and those were the traits he prized most in his lovers. He was the kind of guy that wanted complete control. He wanted them to admire his intelligence and call him sire, as if Provincetown was his personal kingdom and they were his loyal subjects. The fact that he was good-looking certainly helped. Women were attracted to him once they worked their way into his world, and he had a certain superficial charm that made it easy to keep them hanging on every word. Tony went on to have three children with his young bride. Over the years, as he grew into his 20s, he seemed to hang out with teenagers almost exclusively, but that kind of makes sense because Tony was the local weed grower and he kept his friends well supplied. Tony's marijuana patch was located in the woods behind the old Truro Cemetery. It's theorized by some that he used the pot as a way to look cool to a bunch of kids fresh out of high school. It's pretty easy to break the ice with a bowl of the devil's lettuce after all. But a year or two down the line, that hidden patch of ground would hold unspeakable secrets. And those secrets would soon spill out onto the freshly fallen snow, right under the watchful eye of Detective Bernie Flynn and State Trooper Tom Gunnery. It all started in January of 1968, when Patricia Walsh and Marianne Wysocki vanished without a trace. Both women were in their 20s, and neither fit the profile of the usual flew-the-coop sort of disappearances the police normally saw. Provincetown was a quiet place. Women disappeared now and again, sure, but they didn't normally come to any sort of violent end. They almost always turned up sooner or later. On Monday, January 27th, Patricia was expected to return to her class of grade schoolers. The students filed in and sat at their desks as usual, but their teacher never showed up. When she also failed to come in the next day, the principal grew concerned and dialed Pat's father, who was listed as her emergency contact. Unfortunately, he hadn't seen her either. Even more alarming was the fact that all of his phone calls to her went unanswered. He began to call around to her friends, but none of them could tell him much. One friend said that Patricia had mentioned her plans to go to Provincetown with Marianne for the weekend, but that was all she knew. Growing more and more concerned, Patricia's father called Martha, Marianne's mother. She confirmed that the girls planned to visit Cape Cod, but that she hadn't heard from her since the previous Friday. Fighting against the rising fear, he called the police department to check if they had been in an accident. The dispatcher informed him that there were no reports of a crash involving a car matching the description of his daughter's light blue Volkswagen. With no other option available to the worried father, he called the police to report her as missing. At first, the authorities assumed the women had simply decided to extend their vacation without telling anyone, but their families were adamant that this wasn't the case. The girls had checked into a guest house just for the weekend, and their families insisted they would have shown up for work on Monday morning. Patricia was a teacher after all, and teachers are usually dependable types, especially when they love their jobs as much as she did. The police started asking around town. They were able to find the guest house where the girls stayed and spoke with the owner, a woman named Patricia Morton. Mrs. Morton confirmed that the girls had taken a room there but had already checked out. She mentioned that they had plans to meet a friend on Saturday, but she hadn't caught a name. 
As they studied the guest log, something jumped out to the investigators. There was another person staying at the guest house at the same time. It was Tony Costa. The name sent up immediate red flags. During their search, a number of witnesses kept bringing up the same name. Several witnesses even said they saw the women with Tony shortly before their disappearance. Mrs. Morton told them that the women seemed quite friendly with Tony. In fact, on the day they checked out, he had pinned a note to their door asking for a ride. A search of the girl's room turned up nothing noteworthy, but then came the tip-off about Patricia's car. Several residents in the neighboring town of Truro had called in to report seeing a light blue Volkswagen parked in a secluded, out-of-the-way spot behind a rundown cemetery. It was a small town, the kind of place where anything out of the ordinary is immediately noticed, and an abandoned car with Rhode Island license plates definitely counted as out of the ordinary. A local officer was dispatched to investigate and found the vehicle. There was a note on the windshield that said the car had broken down and its owner would return soon. Unaware of the missing women, the officer thought nothing of it and went about his business. But back in Provincetown, several witnesses had claimed to see Tony driving the car. When they talked to a local mechanic, the police learned that Tony had called him to ask how much it would cost to have Patricia's car repainted. Chasing their lead, the investigators took a ride out to the old cemetery, hoping that the missing woman's car might still be parked there but had no such luck. All they found were a set of tire tracks in the snow and an empty gas can. Still, there was something about the surrounding area that made them pause, and it wasn't just the hidden patch of marijuana nearby. The energy was strange there, and it had to mean something. They could feel it. The next day, they returned to the area hoping that the third time would be the charm, and it was. As they searched for clues, Officer James Cook came across something deeply troubling. There were a handful of documents scattered around and half-buried in the snow. He gathered the crumpled scraps of paper, a vehicle registration card, and a few insurance receipts, all in Patricia Walsh's name. Energized by this new lead, the police redoubled their efforts. They launched a full-scale search of the woods, hoping to find any trace of Patricia or Mary Ann. As they combed the woods, State Trooper Tom Gunnery noticed a large depression in the ground. Some kind of green cloth was sticking up through the snow. As he bent down to get a better look, he was met with the unmistakable smell of human decomposition. Carefully, he scraped the snow aside and tugged the green cloth out of the shallow hole. It turned out to be an empty duffel bag. Upon closer inspection, he saw what appeared to be blood on one of the straps. Officer Gunnery sat the duffel bag aside and continued to dig in the hole. Soon, he found a piece of white bone. When he tried to pull it free from the earth, he uncovered the human foot it was still attached to. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. He continued digging, pulling one body part after another out of the shallow grave. The victim, a young woman, had been cut up into eight sections. 
He removed each one as carefully as he could until all that remained in the hole was a clear plastic bag with what appeared to be hair in it. He brought the bag up to get a better look and found himself face to face with the victim's severed head. She had been beaten to the point of disfigurement, her face was swollen beyond recognition, and her nose had more or less been smashed flat. But these remains were far too decomposed to belong to Patricia or Mary Ann. Somehow, in their search for the missing women, they managed to stumble upon a woman they hadn't thought to look for. The autopsy identified her as a teenager named Susan Perry. She'd been missing since the previous Labor Day. Like Patricia and Mary Ann, Susan had ties to Tony Costa, who was known to refer to her as his kid chick. When she disappeared, Tony told everyone that she had hitched a ride to Mexico with a couple of fellow drug enthusiasts, and most people found the story plausible. Now, the horrible truth was coming to light. Aside from being dismembered, her body was horrifically mutilated in many other ways. She'd been pelvically eviscerated, and her uterus and ovaries had been removed. Her heart and liver were missing, and her breasts had been amputated. A pair of blood-soaked panties with the word Thursday embroidered on the front were shoved into her chest cavity. Five months had passed since Susan's parents first reported their daughter's disappearance, and thanks to the accidental discovery, they were finally able to lay her body to rest in a proper burial. But the closure came with a heartbreaking cost. The knowledge that Susan hadn't just been murdered, she'd been brutalized in the sickest of ways. Meanwhile, the girls the police hoped to find remained missing, at least for a while. Clearly, the police had some big questions for Tony Costa. Unfortunately, although somewhat predictably, they didn't get the chance to ask them because Tony had skipped town when he caught wind of the search for the missing women, and for him. With his old room at the guest house now vacated, the police searched the place for clues. Miss Morton complained that he had left a few things behind, like a hairdryer and a few articles of clothing. At first glance, the room didn't seem to have much to offer, but when Marianne's boyfriend was shown the items that had been left there, he recognized the hairdryer. It was hers. Likewise, Patricia's boyfriend recognized a turtleneck sweater. It still carried the faint scent of her perfume, a smell he knew extremely well. Upon opening the closet, they also found a coil of rope with strange red stains on it. Things were looking more and more grim by the second. The hunt continued, even in Tony's absence. Along the way, detectives picked up more information about Tony himself. He did a lot of odd jobs around the community. Carpentry, handiwork, that kind of thing. He also had a love for taxidermy and often roamed the back roads at night, hoping to scoop up some fresh roadkill to add to his stuffed collection. It's a hobby like any other, sure, but it's not exactly a hobby that makes a person seem less likely to be a serial killer. Tony also had a nasty drug problem, which the police were already aware of since he occasionally served as an informant. His increasingly erratic behavior led to a breakdown in his marriage around this time, and he was regularly seen with other women. Interestingly, he seemed to conceal his darker side in certain situations. Nobody in their right mind would call a serial murdering drug addict babysitting material, but when he got a job babysitting seven-year-old Liza Rodman and her sister, the girls never suspected what violence he was capable of. In her experience, Tony was a pretty fun guy. 
he never even so much as raised his voice at them. Sure, there might have been moments when he acted strange or seemed convinced that a nameless someone was out to get him, but being paranoid and slightly shady doesn't automatically mean you like to butcher women in your spare time. Liza wouldn't realize that she had been babysat by a monster until much later in life. Eventually, Tony decided to return to Provincetown. He took himself to the police station intent on pleading his innocence. It didn't go well. When he was asked what happened to Marianne and Patricia, Tony claimed that one of the girls was seeking an abortion and their plan was to go to Montreal afterward. In the spirit of starting a new life in Canada, Patricia had bestowed him with her car, which he was free to use as he wished. That was just one explanation, though. Through the course of the questioning, it became clear that Tony was desperately trying to cover his tracks and his story changed often. The police were suspicious and with understandably good reason. Obviously, it was hard to believe that Patricia would just give her car to a man she barely knew. When they mentioned this, he backtracked and claimed that she hadn't just given him the Volkswagen. He actually bought it for $900. But when they asked him if he paid her the money, he told them that he hadn't. Which also seemed unlikely, because any sane person would expect to have their money before turning over the goods. Realizing that he'd been talked into a corner, Tony said that the women bought drugs from him the previous summer and weren't able to pay up at the time. So Patricia gave him the car instead and they called it even. That was a problem for the officers because he had already claimed that he had never met the girls before. Yet suddenly, he not only knew them, but he'd known them for quite a while. And now he was claiming that Patricia apparently knew and liked him well enough to give him the only means of transportation she and Marianne had to get back home to Rhode Island. He presented a bill of sale from his pocket. There were two signatures, Patricia's and Tony's. He swore that they agreed he would pay them the following day and then they drove him to Truro and parked in a clearing. He claimed that Patricia was going to use the car for one more week and then they would drop it off in the same spot so Tony could pick it up. None of it made any sense, and much of his story contradicted itself, but with no physical proof of the women, dead or alive, the authorities had no power to hold Tony in custody. He remained the prime suspect, however, and was placed under surveillance. Surely it was only a matter of time before they had him behind bars. Then, to the shock of the authorities, Tony produced a telegram that he claimed was sent by the missing girls, indicated they were both alive and well. At the end, it was signed, quote, Love, Patricia and Mary Ann. Much like the bill of sale he had shown them at the police station, this new piece of evidence just seemed far too... convenient. The detective told Tony to have the girls contact the police department themselves, if they truly were unharmed, that is. If they were sending him letters, there was no reason they couldn't drop a dime and call someone, and it would make all of Tony's problems go away almost immediately. But no such contact was ever made. That was probably what the police expected. And yet, a short time later, another telegram showed up. This time it was sent to the address belonging to Tony's mother. And just like the first telegram, this one also ended with the signatures of both Patricia and Mary Ann. At this point, they were fairly certain these messages weren't coming from the missing women. But who were they coming from? Aside from the fact that they were sent from New York, they didn't have much to go on, so the police department sent someone to investigate further. 
The conclusion of that investigation is probably not going to come as a shock, as it turned out both of the telegrams were sent by none other than Tony Costa himself. The digging continued, both into Tony and in the woods, with their focus on the special spot where Tony liked to bring girls late at night so they could marvel at his marijuana plants and do a bunch of drugs. Given its secluded location, it was the perfect place to hurt somebody, or dump somebody, once all the hurting had finally come to its inevitable conclusion. This garden had more than its share of secrets. All around these woods, death had soaked deep down into the soil, and it wasn't limited to the nearby cemetery. It was like a physical presence, something that chilled to the bone far more than the frigid wind and snow ever could. During their investigation, a young girl familiar with Tony's garden told police a harrowing story of the night he took her out into the woods. 17-year-old Marsha Moe bore a striking resemblance to Patricia Walsh. Despite the investigator's assurances that she wasn't in any kind of trouble, the girl seemed extremely nervous, but they could sense that it wasn't the police that she felt frightened of. It was Tony Costa. According to Marsha, Tony decided to bring a bow and arrow along on this particular trip to the garden. After helping him tend to his crop of marijuana, he told her that he wanted to shoot a couple of arrows into the woods. Marcia was cold and wanted to escape the bitter wind, so she told him that she'd meet him back at the car. She turned to head back the way they came and made it about halfway to the car when an arrow hit her in the back. Marcia was lucky. She was wearing a heavy coat that day, which absorbed some of the force and likely saved her life. She said it felt like something had hit her pretty hard, but didn't notice the wound in her back until later that night, as she was getting ready for bed. Her mother rushed her to the doctor, who had the young girl file a report with the police, even though she assumed it was simply an accident. But the next time she went into the woods with Tony, the incident started to seem decidedly less accidental. She had two other friends with her, and Tony was driving a different car. One of her friends opened the glove compartment and found a small handgun. As they talked, it became clear that Marcia was terrified of Tony. She swore that she didn't believe he was involved in the disappearances of Patricia and Marianne, but her fear was palpable. If he caught wind of her conversation with the police, there was a very real possibility that she might be the next young woman to vanish without a trace. After some coaxing, she led the authorities to Tony's favorite spot in the woods. It was a section of the area that the police hadn't yet searched, and Trooper Gunnery could immediately sense that same ominous energy he'd felt before. Something was out there, just waiting to be uncovered, but he couldn't go digging for clues just yet. It was a gray morning, and the small search party was all but frozen stiff thanks to a chilly downpour. They would have to wait for the weather to improve. The officers led Marsha back to the cruiser to warm up, and she gave them a little more information about the monster they were dealing with. She was friends with Tony's estranged wife, the young Avis Costa, and Avis had told her several unsettling stories about their sex life, or more specifically, about Tony's unusual and borderline dangerous appetites in the bedroom. In one instance, Avis almost died after Tony encouraged her to take a sedative called chloral hydrate, which was typically used to calm patients before major surgeries. Other times, he would put a plastic bag over her head until she lost consciousness, and then he would act out his dark fantasies on his defenseless partner. Getting a little freaky in the bedroom with another consenting adult is one thing, but the police felt that this was something entirely different 
something that only the most depraved soul could subject their lover to. As the investigation continued, the police found more disheartening evidence to suggest the girls had been murdered. Tony told them he left Patricia's car in Burlington, Vermont. When the police went to check it out, they found the Volkswagen right where he told them it would be. The Rhode Island license plates had been taken off, but it was definitely the missing woman's car. When they tested the interior, they found traces of blood on the steering wheel, the passenger seat belt and door, and the back seat. When they checked the nearby boarding house Tony had occupied while in Vermont, they found even more damning evidence. Tony had left several articles of clothing in the closet, including a corduroy jacket and a shirt. Both items had long brown hairs on them and were heavily stained with blood. The rope they found back at Mrs. Morton's guesthouse in Provincetown also appeared to have minuscule traces of blood, along with a few human hairs that were too long to belong to their suspect. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The police started sifting through all of their reports of missing women, thinking that they might have overlooked more victims. They came across a report for Sidney Lee Monson, a petite teenager that had been missing for almost nine months. She was last seen by her sister, who watched her get into a car with Tony and then never saw her again. Everywhere they turned, Tony Costa's name kept popping up. Law enforcement was certain the women were dead and Tony clearly had something to do with it, but there wasn't much that they could do until they found the bodies. The weather was much improved by March 4, 1969. Assisted by a crew of volunteers, the investigators combed the area that Marcia had led them to. For this particular excursion, they enlisted the help of a hunting dog named Cookie. Despite the confidence of its handler, who was sure his dog would sniff out anything of importance, the hound was mostly interested in making sure that every tree in the immediate vicinity was sprinkled with urine. The bemused officers watched Cookie race around, hiking his leg up at every opportunity and prayed he wouldn't mistake their legs for a sapling. But as useless as his nose appeared to be, the dog did manage to be helpful, if only by accident. As he ran around the woods, he got tripped up by something sticking out of the ground and went sprawling with a loud yelp. It got the attention of the search party, who found a shallow hole under a layer of ice and snow. An officer reached inside and pulled out a brown handbag covered in dirt. They looked inside and found Patricia Walsh's driver's license, a student ID card from Rhode Island College, a membership card for the Providence Teachers Union, and a ticket stub from a movie she'd recently gone to see. There was also a small change purse containing roughly $4.65 and a couple of tubes of makeup. Although the likelihood of finding her alive looked even smaller now, it was an encouraging find. If her purse was buried out here, her body would probably be somewhere nearby. They kept looking and found another handbag buried at the base of a tree. This one was Mary Ann's. Inside, they found her identification card, which had been torn in half. The purse also contained her birth certificate, a bus schedule, and a Providence library card. 
They also found a note with her mother's contact information, along with instructions to contact her in the event of an emergency. The last item was a receipt from Mrs. Morton's guesthouse, which showed the women had reserved their room for Friday and Saturday. The next day was March 5th. Trooper Gunnery and the rest of the search crew returned to the woods once more, hoping that today would be the day they could bring the missing women home, if only to give their families something to bury. While walking his assigned section of the woods, Trooper Gunnery noticed a large, broken tree limb. It wasn't the kind of break that happened under a forceful wind. It was more like the kind of damage done by hanging something extremely heavy on a branch that couldn't hold the weight. Upon further investigation, he found a length of rope tied to the branch. The rope appeared to have red marks on it, similar to the one that was found in Tony's closet back at the guest house. At the base of the tree, Trooper Gunnery found a plastic pill bottle, a glass vial, and a razor blade. He started kicking away the snow and debris around the area, but stopped when something shiny caught his eye. It was an earring. As he continued poking around, he noticed a patch of earth that appeared to have been disturbed recently. He asked for a shovel and began the hard work of breaking through the frozen ground. When the hole was close to three feet deep, he tossed the shovel aside and began to dig with his bare hands. Eventually, his hard work paid off, but the reward was bittersweet at best. Something sharp poked through his glove, and once he got a good look at what it was, he realized he'd uncovered a turquoise ring. It was still attached to the hand that wore it. Detective Flynn jumped down into the hole to assist him. Together, they found a clump of human hair, but when they tried to pull it up, it came away from the scalp completely. Carefully, Flynn brushed more dirt from the remains and eventually lifted Marianne Wysocki's severed head out of her makeshift grave. Trooper Gunnery pressed on, and it didn't take long to find her torso. The skin had been peeled back, exposing the muscle and bone of her chest. As shocking as the sight was, they didn't have much time to dwell on it. Someone had found a second grave several hundred feet away. They laid Marianne's remains out in the snow and rushed to the next spot. There they found more body parts, stacked on top of one another in the shallow hole. They pulled them out one by one. First, the lower half of Patricia Walsh's body, followed by her legs. They had been slashed from her upper thighs all the way down to her toes. Her torso was next, with her head still attached. Underneath that was another pelvis, which had been severed at the bikini lines. In between each layer of gore, they found articles of clothing. A blood-drenched sweater, a pair of slacks, and a pair of bell-bottom jeans. But the gruesome work still wasn't done. Under another two feet of dirt, they found yet another body, this one severely decomposed. She had been dismembered in a similar manner. Although her face was no longer recognizable, the police were fairly certain they'd recovered the body of Sidney Monson, the girl Tony Costa once called his kid chick. At long last, they finally had enough evidence to arrest him. But first, they'd have to find him. Tony was laying low and living with his half-brother, Vincent Bonaviri. Vincent had recently moved back to Boston and was working at a local liquor store. When the police rolled up to ask Vincent about his brother's whereabouts, he told them that he hadn't seen Tony in over a week, and the last he'd heard, he was still in Provincetown. The detectives didn't buy it for a second. They decided to check Vincent's new apartment, just in case Tony happened to be there. 
The killer looked out the window at the exact moment the officers pulled up. He considered running at first, but then got a better idea. He started down the stairs and met the two officers in the hallway. They stopped him to ask his name, and he breezily told them his name was Vincent Bonaviri. Unbeknownst to him, though, the officers had just spoken to Vincent at the liquor store. He was immediately placed under arrest and taken into custody. Tony was facing four first-degree murder charges for the deaths of Susan Perry, Sidney Monzen, Marianne Wysocki, and Patricia Walsh. By the time they got him into an interrogation room, the station was already swarming with reporters. He seemed to relish his newfound attention, although he steadfastly refused to talk to the police. Meanwhile, his victims were taken to Nickerson Funeral Home, where their autopsies were performed on what was left of them. Mary Ann had been shot twice in the head and had been cut into five sections. There was a deep gash running the length of her chest and some of her skin had been peeled off. She had deep cuts on her legs and feet, and there was evidence of sexual assault, but the medical examiners couldn't be sure if it occurred before or after her death. The pathologist noted that the woman hadn't simply been murdered, she'd been absolutely mauled. The other women had suffered a similar treatment. Patricia had been shot in the back of the neck. The bullet severed her carotid artery and lodged itself in her left cheek. Like her friend, Patricia had a deep gash running from her sternum to her pelvis, and the skin had been peeled back. There were a number of other cuts and gashes to her torso, suggesting the killer was in a frenzied state. Her lower half was even worse. She had seven-inch-long slash marks zigzagging in different directions down the back of her thighs and calves. She had also been assaulted in a similar manner to Mary Ann. The other body was fingerprinted, since it would be impossible to identify her visually given her advanced state of decay. The detective's hunch turned out to be correct. They had indeed recovered the remains of 19-year-old Sidney Monson. She'd been cut into four portions, but her right leg was still missing. Her left leg had been sawed off at the femoral shaft and her kidneys were missing. Aside from that, though, it was hard to determine much about the way she had died or been disposed of. After all, she'd probably been buried out there in the woods for at least nine months, if not longer. By the time she was finally found, her remains were just too far decomposed. As news of Tony's arrest began to spread, District Attorney Edmund Dennis saw his time to shine. He held a press conference to inform the riveted sea of journalists about a new development in the case, but his account wasn't exactly accurate. In fact, it was quite embellished, with each gory detail designed to whip up a media frenzy. He told the crowd that the killer had removed each victim's heart, and the organs were missing from the graves. He went on to say that the bodies had been cut into as many parts as there were joints, with evidence suggesting the killer's tool of choice was an axe or a meat cleaver. The district attorney went on to say that some sections of the remains had been covered with marks that could only be made by human teeth, suggesting that these parts had been bitten and chewed by the murderer. None of this was true, however. Trooper Gunnery and Detective Flynn had spoken to the medical examiner personally, and they knew for a fact that the district attorney was pulling these details out of thin air. But once the media got their hands on a good story, it was like a runaway train. Regardless of the actual facts, Tony would soon become known as the Cape Cod Vampire, and there was nothing the investigators could do about it. 
None of them were too keen on the idea of publicly correcting him in front of every major newspaper in the state. Still, they worried that his exaggerations would cost them the case. After spending weeks digging around in the snow, nobody wanted to see Tony get away with his sins for the sake of the district attorney's moment in the spotlight. The case also caught the attention of author Kurt Vonnegut. His daughter, Edith, had once been friends with the killer, and under the right circumstances, she very well could have been his next victim. When he was arrested, Kurt wrote an article comparing the vicious killer to Jack the Ripper. That title probably wasn't entirely accurate either, but it certainly seemed more fitting than the Cape Cod vampire. After Tony's imprisonment and subsequent conviction in May of 1970, Kurt Vonnegut would send him the occasional letter and would usually receive one in return. There was something about Tony that fascinated the author. Maybe he was simply drawn to darkness, or maybe he was trying to figure out how such a barbaric monster could fool young women into feeling safe in his presence, including his own daughter. Kurt Vonnegut once said, quote, The message of his letters to me was that a person as intent on being virtuous as he could not possibly have hurt a fly and he believed it. While in prison, Tony Costa did some book writing of his own. The novel, which he called Resurrection, gave his account of what had happened to each of the women. In the book, he described being present for the murders of Patricia and Mary Ann, but blamed the deaths on a friend he called Corey. According to him, the four of them had taken some drugs, and at some point, Corey shot both of the women. Tony managed to wrestle the weapon away, but it was too late. Patricia died almost instantly. Marianne survived the initial shot, but Tony claimed there was no way to save her, so he used his knife to put an end to her obvious suffering and helped to bury the bodies afterwards. As for Sidney Monson and Susan Perry, he claimed that both women suffered fatal drug overdoses. After they died, it was Corey who hacked their bodies to pieces and buried them in the woods, with Tony completely unaware until well after the fact. Although he wrote about Corey as if he were a real flesh-and-blood person, there was no evidence that Tony had help when it came to his gruesome deeds. It's possible that Corey was something akin to an alter ego, the part of his psyche where all his monstrosities hibernated until the perfect opportunity presented itself. Or maybe Corey was just a scapegoat he made up after the fact. If you've ever read O.J. Simpson's book, you probably know that he employed a similar tactic by claiming the murders of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman were committed by a friend named Charlie, while O.J. simply happened to be present at the time. Both stories carry that same vibe and seem equally hard to believe. Four years after his life sentence was handed down, Tony took his own life by hanging himself in his prison cell. Although some people believe his suicide was an admission of guilt, one fact remains clear. In spite of all of his charms, Tony Costa was a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, 
please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.